Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris Taylor, and I'm going to be your host today. Let me tell you what, we are so happy that you're listening in today. In fact, if this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. Well, today we are wrapping up our series, Making a Messiah, The Closing Arguments. We've been looking at the life of Jesus and asking the question, is he really the Messiah like he said he was? And now we're getting to the part where the tension is really coming to a head. We're talking about one of the strangest stories from Jesus' life. We don't think of Jesus as a temperamental person, but one time he went to the temple and turned tables, cracked whips, and made a lot of people really angry. What gave him the right to do that? Why did he do that? Let's find out from our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Good morning. Some great praise songs this morning, weren't there? Isn't that cool? How many of you guys really consider yourself a child of God? Okay? Listen, if you really are, if you are a genuine child of God, you'll be pulling for Oregon this afternoon. <laughs> God will be. <laughs> We're going to do something really, really different coming up this Easter. You know, it's one month till Easter. Kind of, kind of cool. This is a kind of the biggest celebration day that we have as as Jesus followers, because we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In the past, we've done these setter meals. That's what they're called—a setter meal. It's kind of a reenactment of the Last Supper. It was a kind of a Passover meal that Jesus transformed into our Lord's Supper. And we've done that before here several times where we've had those reenactments. In fact, we've had hundreds of people come to these things where we do that reenactment. We're going to do it a lot differently this year. We're still going to have a reenactment. But this year on Thursday of Easter week, April the 18th, we want to have dozens of these all over town. We're going to have a reenactment that you're going to be able to follow along with on uh, either a live stream or that's uh, going to be video based. We're going to make that available to you. And then we want our church family just all over town to be remembering what Jesus did on that night. And it's going to explain a whole lot about what we do here every single week. This is something we'd really encourage the whole church family to get engaged in. Make this Easter really special in this way. But in order to make this work, we're going to need dozens of people to be willing to open up their homes for one of these little setter meals, okay? It's not going to require a lot. We're going to give you a packet of material that's going to explain exactly what you need to do. We're going to give you a a bunch of the material, so there's not going to be a whole lot that you're going to have to prepare for. We're going to try to make it as simple as possible. But we'd like just groups of family, friends, even people who've never just engaged with each other before to sit down and to do this meal together on that uh, Thursday night. So we're going to need a lot of people to sign up as hosts. And uh, what I'm going to encourage you to do this morning is somewhere near you, there's one of those little cards in front of you, right? And there's a little golf pencil in one of those racks. If you're willing to serve as one of these hosts, Please pick up one of those cards, write your name, just a little bit of contact information, either an email or a phone number that we can get in contact with you, okay? Fill that out, and as you're leaving, hand it to one of our welcome team, and we'll get in contact with you. 
but we really need quite a few people to do this in order to make this work. This could be really cool for this church family. It's a great place to invite your friends, to invite your neighbors. It's a great outreach event for our church. So let's do that together if you don't mind. Anyway, grab one of those cards, fill out your name. I don't see anybody moving. You need to be moving, grabbing one of those cards, putting your name on it, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we really do want to honor you. We believe that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God. You've come to be our Savior, you've come to be our Lord. And that life works best when we put you right in the center. We're going to look at a scene this morning, Lord, that just shows the audacity of Jesus as our Lord. Help us to understand its power, not only back then, but for us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. scene we are going to look at today really does show again that Jesus is really, really good but he's anything but tame. We don't serve a tame God. Now, all around you, probably all around your life, home, work, just around you, culturally, there are these power struggles. Wherever you look, there are these power struggles as people kind of fight for what I want, what I like, what I need for my rights, right? You've seen those kind of things. It seems like for so many, life is just a sequence, a series of power struggles. Sometimes it's at home. Who's the boss at your house? Mom? Dad? A lot of houses, it's the kids. If you've got a baby, it could be the baby is the boss at your house, right? Kind of demanding everything. For some of you guys, it's even a dog or a cat. You guys need help. (laughs) Just answer the question. Who gets to control the remote at your house? Who gets to decide whether or not you're going to get up and go to church this next morning? And it comes out in so many other ways, you know. You've seen it in the news. What's wrong with slipping a little money under the table to give your kid an advantage? Going to school or at play. Power struggles. How about at church? Who's the boss at church? I mean, so often, way too often, there are all these power struggles at church. Who gets, who gets to set the direction for a church? The preacher? The elders? Those who've been here the longest? Those who give the most money? Those who are the loudest? Who gets to decide what kind of a church this church, Capital City, will be? Or culturally, all these power struggles... How about one of these cultural power struggles? A woman has the right to choose, doesn't she? After all, it's her body. Who has the right to tell her what to do with her body? Or other ways. How about in D.C.? Who's the boss in D.C.? Trump, Pelosi, Mueller, Ocasio-Cortez? Who do you think? Or do you think it's okay to crack an egg over the head of someone who's disagreeing with you? You saw that in the news last week. Power struggles. What I want, what I like, what I need, my rights, battles over control, over power. We're going to get back to that stuff in a few minutes. See, if you want to talk about power struggles, this is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. And it's still in the news. It's always in the news. If you want to stir up a real fight, just disrupt the balance there on Temple Mount. Muslims, Jews, Christians, all of them jockeying for power, elbowing each other. What I want, what I like, what I need, my rights. 
Right now, the Temple Mount is under Islamic control. In fact, the Al-Aqsa Mosque has been there for 1,300 years. A long time. The mosque, the Dome of the Rock, up on that mount is considered the third holiest spot in Islam today. But that's also where Solomon's Temple was 3,000 years ago. And it's where the Jewish Temple was 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to that temple. And today it is the single holiest site in the world for a lot of Jews and even for a lot of Christians with a mosque sitting right where they think the temple of God should be. So every once in a while a Jewish group or even a, some Christian group is going to go there and they're going to stir things up by talking about tearing the mosque down, right? And rebuilding the temple. And if you want to stir a hornet's nest, just start stirring stuff up on Temple Mount. In fact, just in the last month, there have been over 60 arrests and fire bombings right there. And it's not just about what's on top of the Temple Mount, even along the edges. There are those huge stones along the edges. They were part of the wall that surrounded the temple all the way back in the time of Jesus. It's called the Western Wall. Some people call it the Wailing Wall. For Jews today, it's as close as they can get to the place where the God of Israel promised to dwell with his people. So they go there to pray, and some of them write their prayers on little slips of paper, and they slip them into the cracks of that between those stones. And some of you guys in this room have actually been there and seen that. It's pretty cool. For the Muslims, that's the spot where Muhammad tied up his horse on his night journey to Jerusalem before he ascended up into paradise. So you want to stir up a hornet's nest? Create a scene right there, right around the temple. See what happens. It's an emotional, an emotional place. And I'm telling you guys, all that is simply child's play compared to the emotions that were attached to the temple back in the time of Jesus. You want to stir a hornet's nest? You want to start a fight? You want to die? Create a scene in the temple. Pick a fight in the temple, which is what Jesus did. When I told you last week that Jesus went to Jerusalem to pick a fight, and when he did, he was essentially telling him this, you either crown me or you kill me, but I'm not going to let you ignore me. And without a doubt, one of the reasons they decided to kill him is what he did in the temple on that day. Guys, the temple back then was the heart of Judaism. It was the symbol of Judaism. It's where so many of Israel's greatest stories had gone down. It was the subject of some of their greatest songs. You don't mess with the temple. That's not only going to enrage the Jews, it's going to stir up the Romans too because they didn't let people mess with other people's temples because they knew that that would always stir the people up. I mean, think about how people respond today when you hear about a bombing in a, in a mosque or a bombing in a synagogue or a bombing in a church. I mean, it's been in the news, hadn't it? 50 people gunned down in a mosque last week in New Zealand. 11 people gunned down in a synagogue in Pittsburgh a couple of months ago. Church shootings in Texas and Tennessee and South Carolina over the past couple of years. And people always get really fired up. Imagine those emotions on steroids back then. Back then for the Jews, the temple was an irreplaceable way to do life with God, for God, God's way. It was way more important to them than a church like this is to us. It's kind of like 
God's house on earth. Now, they, they knew that God couldn't be contained in a building for pretty sake. Pretty sake. They knew he was omnipresent. He was too big. He's everywhere. But they believed that the temple was kind of the touch point for God's presence on earth. In fact, they even narrowed it down. Back then, they had all these courtyards. This is the outer courtyard. There's an inner courtyard inside this little tiny wall. This courtyard here. There's a courtyard further in. This outer courtyard was the courtyard of the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles could go into the outer court of the temple, but just no further in. In fact, there were signs on this little wall that said if a Gentile went past that sign, they'd kill him. And they would. It'd be kind of like putting up a sign out in our foyer. Citizens can pass through these doors, but if you're an illegal, we'll kill you. That's kind of what it was like back then. And they'd do it. The next little courtyard was for the women. They could get closer to the Gentiles, but they couldn't get as close as the men. The next courtyard was for the Jewish men, but they couldn't get as close as the priests. And even the priests couldn't enter the Holy of Holies, just the high priest, just one day a year, and only if he had a blood sacrifice, and only if he had a rope tied around his ankle, because if he died inside, they'd have to yank him out because no one else could go in and get him out. Pretty amazing closest you could get to God on earth in their eyes. You just don't mess with the temple. I mean, back then for the Jews, the temple was how to do life with God, for God, God's way. It was the place they offered their sacrifices to God, and that's how they did life with God. In fact, it was the only place where they could legitimately go and offer sacrifices to their God. Now, this sacrifice stuff is pretty weird to us today. I mean, offering grain offerings or killing something and offering it to God. But back then, it was the way that people did it. If you wanted your sins forgiven, if you wanted to be spiritually clean, if you wanted peace with God, you offered him sacrifices. So if you mess with the sacrifices, how are your sins going to be forgiven? How are you going to be clean? How are you going to have peace with God? So every single day, the priest would be in the temple offering sacrifices to God. Every day, the Jews would go to the temple to offer these sacrifices to God. And all these different kinds of sacrifices for every different part of their life with God. They had burnt offerings and peace offerings every single day. Kind of like our Lord's Supper to them. They'd bring these sin offerings and these guilt offerings to get rid of their sin or to cleanse their impurities. These things were necessary, they believed. To be acceptable to God. You don't mess with the temple. I mean, even Rome, this was a client state right now. Even Rome was in control of the whole thing. Even Rome recognized that you don't go ahead and mess with the temple. In fact, they actually had a fortress built right in the wall of the temple. The Antonia Fortress. So the soldiers could respond to any kind of unrest in the temple itself. They had their police at hand. The Jews had their police at hand. You don't mess with the temple. Unless you're Jesus. And he was picking a fight. He was entering into town and said, crown me or kill me. Let me tell you what happened. I'm going to back up just a little tiny bit. It's a Sunday, maybe a Monday. They're not absolutely sure which. It's somewhere around the 1st of April, almost this time of the year. 30 AD, likely. 
up till now, whenever people started saying out loud that Jesus might really be the Messiah of God, he'd say, shh, don't spread that around yet. Because he knew that once that was spread around, they'd try to kill him. And he wasn't ready to die yet. He still had things to do, some prep to do. But now everything changes. We looked at it last week. This is kind of his coming out, his going public, his pulling down the veil. He tells his disciples to get him a donkey, a little one. Because Zechariah the prophet had prophesied that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a young donkey. And he chose to ride into Jerusalem, ride into Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Down the Mount of Olives. Because Zechariah the prophet had predicted that the Messiah would plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. And people started putting their robes down in front of him. And they started grabbing these palm branches and waving them and putting some of them in front of him. Acknowledging him as God's Messiah. And he didn't tell him to hush up this time. The leaders came to Jesus and they said, you need to tell the people to hush up. Otherwise, we're going to have a disturbance here and it's going to be responded to. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, not this time. Crown me or kill me, but you won't ignore me. Now, we talked about that stuff last week. And if you really want to dig into that stuff deeper, you can go onto our website and you can still catch up. Well, here's what happens next. Remember, Luke is the guy we're following his account. Luke researched all this stuff carefully. He talked to the eyewitnesses. He says there's this cheering and this jeering of Jesus as he's entering into town. And then as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, Jesus began to cry. He began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But it's too late now. And peace is hidden from your eyes. And then he says this. He says, before long, your enemies are going to build ramparts against your walls. They're going to encircle you. They're going to close you in from every side. And that happened 40 years later. They're going to crush you to the ground. Your children are going to go with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place. And they didn't. Because you didn't recognize it when I was here, when God visited you. See, if you read between the lines, Jesus is weeping, he's crying, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows that most of the people are going to turn their backs on him. He knows they're going to kill him. They're going to kill their God in less than a week. And even after he walks out of the tomb, three days later, he knows that most of the people there are still going to reject him. And it breaks his heart. Breaks his heart. And within the lifetime of many of those who were there listening to him, the Romans would surround Jerusalem. They would crush it. Tens of thousands of Jews would be enslaved or killed. The temple would be torn down completely. Jesus said these things out loud this time. Do you think he's picking a fight? Hmm. And what he does next, he just keeps piling it on. You see, too many people have this notion of Jesus as mild and gentle and meek, right? That's a myth. Jesus was good, but he was not tame. He had come to town to pick a fight, a fight he intended to lose. Or so it seemed, at least for a couple days. 
And if you want to pick a fight, if you want to get yourself killed, just pick a fight with the biggest bully in the neighborhood, right? Just poke him right in the eye. Do it right out in public and find the biggest hot spot possible to poke him. It's their feast of Passover. Tens of thousands, this is a modern picture, but it would have looked something like that. Tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims are flooding into Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate the Exodus. That's when Moses was used by God to pull the people out of Egypt, if you remember the stories. I mean, as preparation, all of the groups of pilgrims, 10 or 20 in a group, they had to have a lamb for their sacrifice. Josephus, actually, who's a Jewish historian at that time, and he exaggerates a little, but still, he tells us that 255,000 lambs were bought, killed, sacrificed during Passover week. Quarter of a million of them. Most of the pilgrims couldn't bring a lamb with them. They probably didn't have them where they were coming from and too hard to transport them. And if they got them there and the lamb was blemished, it wouldn't be suitable as a sacrifice. So most of the lambs were bought and sold in the temple courts, already pre-approved for the sacrifice. They were all bought and sold in the area that was reserved for the Gentiles. So can you imagine what that court of the Gentiles looked like during Passover week, what it sounded like? what it smelled like. Think New York Stock Exchange and add livestock, right? They had to get these lambs somewhere. Every family unit had to have a, a lamb. It had to be without blemish. They couldn't bring it with them, most of them. They had to get it here. So a guy by the name of Annas, Annas, had an idea. Annas had been the high priest for a while. After he finished as high priest, he passed the job around to his sons, but he was kind of the power behind the temple. He was the godfather of that area. And he had these bazaars set up in the temple courts where pilgrims could buy their lambs with a little extra for his pockets. And everybody that came in had to pay a tax, but they had to pay it in Jewish coins. So he had these money changers set up in the temple where they could exchange for Jewish coins for a little extra money. He became a very, very, very rich man. Well, here's what Jesus does next. Luke says, Jesus entered the temple. He began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. And this is what he said. He says, the temple, my house, will be a house of prayer. My temple my house will be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, this is my place. I get to make the rules for my house. And I have said, this will be a house of prayer. If you go over to Mark's account of the same incident, he adds this prayer. My house, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations, not just the Jews. And here you are in the only part of the temple where the Gentiles could come. And you've turned it into a Walmart on Black Friday, right? And this is where you expect them to pray? So what's he doing? I mean, Jesus goes into the temple of God and he starts rearranging the furniture, right? The only guy who has the authority to go into the house and start rearranging the furniture is the owner of the house. 
What would you think this morning if someone popped in that back door? He started coming in this place as we're all sitting here and he starts flipping over some of the chairs and chasing some of you guys out of here because he, he doesn't like some of you guys being here. He says you're here for the wrong reasons. Comes over to his worship stations, just kind of flips it over, climbs up onto this stage and smashes a couple of the guitars and says, this is my house. This is my house. I decide what goes on in this place. My rules. Would there be a few here who might gently disagree? Or not so gently? What do you think Annas and his minions are going to do when Jesus goes into the temple and begins driving out those who are manning his bazaars and those people who are changing the money? Jesus has come to pick a fight and not a little one. He's come to pick a fight that he intends to lose, it seems, for a couple days. So he pokes the biggest bully in the hood right out in public in the prickliest hot spot in their part of the world at the very worst time possible, just as the pilgrims are streaming into Jerusalem by the tens of thousands. Crown me or kill me, but you won't ignore me. Guys, books have been written about this scene, what it means. I mean, some people think that Jesus was just going into the temple to clean it up. That's why it's called cleansing the temple. He wasn't really trying to disrespect the temple. He wasn't trying to change things. He was just trying to clean it up. Other people think it's way more than that. A couple of pieces, especially in Matthew and Mark, that aren't here in Luke, which I don't have time to unpack. But they suggest that maybe what Jesus is doing is signaling that the time of the temple is over. It's about to be replaced. This is about the old way to do life with God. There's a new life to, way to do life with God coming. Could be. Bottom line for us today, for whatever other reasons Jesus did it, Jesus is picking a fight. He's picking a fight with the biggest bully in town. And he chose to do it at a time and a place where they could not ignore him. Crown me or kill me. Guess which one they chose? <laughs> Very next verse. Luke tells us that after that, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and other leaders of the people, all of them together, started plotting how to kill him. And it took them about one week to get it done. This is my house, says Jesus. It's not your house. This is my house. I am your Messiah, he says. I am your Savior. I am your Lord. I am your God, he says. This is my house. I decide what to do with my house. And if he really was God's Messiah, if he really was the Son of God, don't you think he has that right? Do you think Jesus has authority over his house? Well, let's take that idea and let's just lay it over the top of a couple of other contexts where we live. What would this principle look like for you and for me today? Now, Julie and I, Julie's my wife, we're a little bit weird. 
couple of years ago, we decided to downsize, right? Our kids were gone. We didn't need all the room anymore, and we didn't need the bills of a big house. But I had kind of a weird idea. What if? You see, my favorite place to live my whole life, and we've lived almost 20 different places, right? My favorite place to live was a little farm on the coast of Oregon. I loved the farm, and I loved the idea of going back to a farm life. It was just cool, but I couldn't afford one. Tommy and Alethea, my daughter and my son-in-law, were looking to move too. And weirdly enough, we actually get along. So I said to Tommy, what if we throw in together? What if we just do it old style? And we did. We bought a little farm, just a play farm. It's not a real farm. We don't have to make a living from it. It's just a place to play. None of us has the time to take care of a real farm, but all of us together, we do fine with a play farm, and it's fun. And believe it or not, we all live in the same house. Four generations in the same house. Julie's dad is there. Julie and I, the next generation, Tommy and Alethea, and then two of my grandkids, Morgan and Stephen. Is that not crazy? Some of you guys, you're thinking, you're not going to say it out loud, but you're thinking it probably is. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose house is it? Whose house is it the most? Is it Lehman? He's been in the family the longest, 90 some odd years, right? Is it Julie and me? After all, we're the wisest. That's humor, okay? Is it our house the most? Tommy is the strongest, brings in the most funds. Lathia, my daughter's the strongest willed. Is it her house? My grandkids are the loudest. Is it their house? Whose house is it most? Whose likes, whose needs, whose wants, whose rights go first? The oldest? The strongest? The one who pays the biggest chunk of the bills? The ones who whine the most? I've seen families model in every one of those, haven't you? How does it work at your house? Now, what if, now I know this is going to sound crazy to some of you, what if God is really part of our family? What if, and I mean this literally, what if our little play farm is really God's house, not ours? Would his wants and his likes go first? Would his rules trump any of our rules at our house? Would he get to dictate how we treat each other? Would he have a say in how we spend our money and our time? How would he complete the sentence for our place? My house shall be a house of... How would he complete that sentence at your house? My house shall be a house of. And what if we actually believe that here at Capital City? What if we actually tried to live it out? I'm telling you guys, every single family here at Capital City would be healed. Do you believe that? Every family would experience healing. What about this context? Just out of curiosity, how many of you guys were part of this church family before I ever got here? Would you mind standing up if you don't mind? If you were here before I got here to Capital City, would you stand up? That is so cool. 
guys, these are incredibly faithful and incredibly tolerant people, right? You can go ahead and sit down if you want. They really are. I'm serious. It's amazing what they have done. How many of you guys have only been connecting with this church family for a year or less? Would you mind standing up? You don't have to be a member, but you've just been coming here in the last year or so. A number of you. Guys, thank you for coming. Really do appreciate it. And I can tell you from the bottom of my heart that your being here means a whole lot. Now, let me ask all of you guys a question. Who is more family? Who's more family? The old timers or the newbies? Whose likes, whose wants, whose needs, whose rights need to be put first in this house? Old timers or the newbies? Or maybe we should put some other options on the table. The oldest or the youngest? The strongest or the powerless? Those who contribute the most money? Those who are the loudest? The holy men like me? <laughs> That's funny, guys. It's a joke. And you've seen churches driven by every one of those models, haven't you? And in fact, every church will drift towards one of those models, unless. What if God really is a part of this family? What if this really is not my house, your house? What if this really is God's house, God's family? What if his wants and his likes go first every single time? What if his rules trump ours every single time? And they will. Would he get to dictate how we treat each other? Would he get to dictate how we spend our money and our time? What would he say about Capital City? My house shall be a house of what? How would you think he would complete that sentence? telling you guys, if we actually believe this, if we actually live this out, this church family would not only go through healing, we would be on fire for God. And we'd pack this place out. One more context. One more context in which all of us live where this big idea applies. One of the leaders of the early church was this guy named Paul. At one time, Paul hated Jesus, and Paul hated Jesus' followers. And In fact, if you're suspicious of the church and suspicious of Jesus' followers, you ought to read Paul. You'd probably like him. But he had an encounter with Jesus that really turned him around, and he became the single most powerful teacher in the early church. In fact, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by the Apostle Paul. Now listen to what he says. He says, don't you realize your body... Your body is the temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you, and it was given to you by God, but you do not belong to yourself. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Huh. Do you believe that? Do you really? You're going to hear 
People tell you in the abortion debate, no one can tell a woman to do with her body. It's her body. And a woman has a right to choose what she does with her own body. No Jesus follower can say that. No Jesus follower can say that. It's almost blasphemy on the lips of a Jesus follower. It's not your body. You don't own you. I don't own me. This is his temple. This is his house. What he likes, what he wants, his rules trump ours whenever they clash every single time. Do you buy that? We guys do it too. We say stupid things like, I'll put into my body what I want. I'll use my body, I'll pleasure my body however I want. It's my body. It's about what I want, it's about what I like, it's about what I need, it's about my rights. Jesus comes along and said, this is my house. So for yourself, how would Jesus complete the sentence? My house will be a house of. My house will be a house of. Guys, it's a question of authority. See, Jesus is making a staggering claim. This whole thing, this making of a Messiah has been kind of laying the groundwork, the evidence for the claim that Jesus makes. I am your Messiah, he says. I am your Savior and your Lord. I am your God. So he says here, crown me or kill me. But if you kill me, you better hope I stay dead. Some of us are willing to admit intellectually. I mean, there's a massive evidence, guys. He not only claimed to be the Messiah, but he exhibited messianic power. Maybe he was really the Son of God. The evidence is pretty overwhelming. I'm telling you guys, believing it intellectually is not enough. And some of you guys are honest enough to look inside and you're willing to admit that maybe you do need some saving. And you're willing to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, which is cool. It's just not enough. He's come here to be our Savior and our Lord. And we will discover that when we allow Him to be both our Savior and our Lord, life works. It works here, it works forever. We were made to do life with God, for God, God's way. Are you willing? I'm going to say a prayer and then I'm going to just say a couple more words as we, as we get ready to wind this stuff down. Let's, let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus and his courage, his power, his messianic actions that just established beyond a shadow of a doubt his claim to be our Messiah and our God. Give us the wisdom become people of God. Help us to taste the life that you made us to live. A life of purpose. A life of 
courage, a life of joy. Help us to have the wisdom to put Jesus at the very center of who we are. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Guys, we're going to sing a song in just a moment. It's going to say, you're greater and we've got to become lesser. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. But the thing is, is the greater he gets in your life, the better your life's going to get. That's just what we honestly believe. It may be that some of you guys really want to talk. I mean, I just love to talk to you about making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. I'm going to hang out down here. If you want to come up during this song, welcome. Come on down here and we'll talk. If you're a little bit shy about doing that, I'm going to hang around in the front here right after the service. And I'd love to talk to you about making Jesus Christ the Lord of your life or maybe about making Capital City your church home. Right now, if you've got a decision to make, if God's nudging you, don't push back. It's never wise to push back when God nudges on you. Okay? Let's stand and sing the song together.